0: This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Luca Nets. Luca grew up with nothing, but made millions before his 25th birthday by building and selling multiple businesses. Two years ago, he spent $2.5 million to buy the Pudgy Penguin's NFT project, and has since turned it into one of the best-run NFT projects. In this episode, Luca explains why spending millions to buy the brand was a bargain and his grand ambitions for where he intends to take the Pudgy Penguin IP. We also talk about the overall NFT landscape, whale management, and how he thinks about strategy and execution. Please enjoy this conversation with Luca Nets. Luca, thank you for joining me today. This is going to be a lot of fun. If anyone in the Web3 space that's having fun, it's definitely Luca Nets. Just a
2: little bit of fun. Got to have some fun.
1: I think Pudgy Penguins, it's a maybe a future household brand name, but it's definitely something in the Web3 space that many people know had different feelings about it. For me, when Pudgy Penguins came on the scene, at that point, it was a bit of something that the people who were buying Bored Apes and other projects didn't like because it was being almost taken over by a group of people that didn't necessarily feel like they had the same motivations. There was kind of a riff. There's a lot of controversy and history around it. And so I think a fun place to start would just be, when did you learn about Pudgy Penguins as the actual formation of this project began? When did you even first hear about it?
2: So I found it on Twitter, August of 2021. I was an NFT collector prior, but I was looking for my first PFP and I was actually looking for what I would define as the most universal PFP. The narrative back then was digital identity and that these were identities for people and that made a lot of sense for me. And I thought to myself, well, from an investment thesis, the identity with the most demand, because they're a finite resource by nature, is the one that's going to appreciate the most in price, because if you have enough demand and a tight enough supply, then price goes up. And so I felt like the most universal character or the most universal identity would have the most room for upside. And I was kind of scouring... The PFP verse for it, I liked apes, but I thought they weren't universal. I liked punks, but I thought they weren't universal. And so I saw these penguins, and to me, it hit all of the check boxes that I was looking for, an identity that resonates with anyone from any gender, any ethnic background, any interests, basically any demographic. Today, I believe Pudgy Penguins is the most universal. And I think has the room and the potential to be the face of NFTs. And so that's ultimately kind of what we're going for. But that's how I found Pudgy Penguins. I was looking for the most universal IP, PFP, from just a pure investment thesis, like buying the NFT. I knew the moment I saw it that it was the one, bought a ton, was able to make a great profit on those, and then moved them into like a doodles and a board ape and the rest and kept my forever penguins. But I was pretty frustrated at the teams. I held almost a hundred at one point and ended up selling them because I didn't like what the team was doing.
1: So let's get into that. The team had a bit of a rough patch with the community. There was people that were very interested. It's not my main area of focus, but it obviously leads to the moment where you get a lot more involved. Just give us a little sense of what happened for the people that were owning it, what they thought they were, and then to the moment where eventually this thing goes up for sale.
2: Yeah, they were just 18 to 19-year-olds in their college dorm. And a lot of people who started NFT projects in 2021 didn't sign up for the expectation that these were businesses or companies or brands. They signed up under the expectation that this was fun and this was cool and maybe a way to make a little bit of money. In this case, a lot of money. They got caught with their pants down when the narrative shifted from like, hey, these are just identities, decentralized identities to, hey, these are brands, companies, and value and utility, which pretty much Yuga Labs trailblazed. Yuga Labs, the whole PFP narrative on its head and basically said, hey... These are the next comings of brands and companies and gaming and the rest of the nine. And once they set the expectation, the expectation pivoted on everybody else. And everybody else was like, well, I didn't really sign up for this, but they took in all this money. Their lives are changed because of it. And so they're now trying to meet that expectation. But in that meeting of that expectation, you realize that only the best of the best can really succeed here. This business... And I tell you, this is somebody who's made millions of dollars in SaaS, millions of dollars in info, hundreds of millions of dollars in consumer product. This business is hands down the most difficult of them because it really is a ton of different categories and niches of companies consolidated into one. And so, if you're not elite of a, the elite or the best of the best, you will fail here. At the time, I didn't realize that because I was on the outside and I was like, "You guys are losers. You guys are lame. Why aren't you building this company? You have all this funding." go take this to the moon. And then now that I'm in a leadership position, my uh, opinions completely changed. I have nothing for empathy. There's a thin line. I have empathy for a lot of those early guys. I don't really have empathy for the people who knew what they were signing up for after many, many mistakes had kind of transpired. But that early group of 2021 people like Koala Intelligence Agency and Lazy Lion, that whole group, I will never fault them for what transpired.
1: No, totally different. I think that was the camels, the koalas, the craniums. There were so many projects where people were just trying different things. It really felt like experimentation at the time. This group got a different reputation of, is it going to rug or something was gonna happen? And, and basically it comes to an end point. And I was always curious where that moment happened. Like we hadn't really seen this before that someone was gonna potentially like sell the IP. It was kind of like these projects would come, they would go, they would either go out with a bang and people would call it a rug. People just were done and they wanted nothing to do with it or they were just kind of fizzle. And this one ended up with going up for sale. Was that their idea to sell it or did you approach them? Was there a bidding process? What happened?
2: The community forced them out. And so this is an interesting one because at the end of the day, these things live and die by their community. It's so community oriented. If your founder is clearly incompetent, you have the power to move them out. Everyone thinks that the path is like, we're going to sue them. It's going to get you absolutely nothing done. And unless you're just uber rich, suing is a matter of principle. It's not a matter of yielding any return, but you can move them out and get new leadership. That's the way to do it. There's plenty of projects out there with so much potential, so many good communities. You just be surprised. They don't really know it or they do know it. And they just don't really want to champion it because it'd ruin their bags. But there's probably maybe about realistically 10 groups that really know what they're doing and the rest are like completely lost. Your NFT project of the week that you think is going to pump to the moon, it's not. And the thing is, is once you see a red flag, you have to take it on its face and you have to read it for what it is. If there's one red flag, I promise you, there's a hundred behind the back burner that you don't know about. There's really about five that are super elite and completely understand it. And there's about another five that get it, have hope, maybe don't have the team or the skill set to completely support what they know, but they know. And then everybody else is just completely shot, no hope. And then obviously all the things that don't have any leaders and have no potential for execution risks, like the AI generative stuff, that's its own bucket. Really talking PFPs here and then the rest is
1: just. This project is basically on the path of not the top five, not the top 10 before Lucas shows up. This is basically like all the other ones. They don't have the talent, they don't have the people and empathy to the people that were not signed up for this. But the thing's going down. The community is upset about it. But this is a very unique situation, unlike the other ones where they just kind of end or it's over or they just exist but nobody cares. So the community wants the founders out. Was it from the get-go that you were thinking, I want to go bid on this thing? Or how did this come about?
2: No, somebody else bidded on it. And then I was like, well, this is such a low bid. This is like an incredibly low bid that if I double that bid, I'd probably be accepted. <laughs> and the double of that, just from a pure business principle, this was anything under 10 million, this was the most obvious buy in the world. Because the thing had netted so much cash in such a short amount of time that if you really understood it, understood the community, understood how much they were getting battered down and how much they held their floor and like all of the revenue opportunity. Like if you really just understood it, the right entrepreneur would have spent a million dollars on this. So this guy offered a million, I offered two and a half, It was actually in ETH. So one guy offered 500 ETH, I offered 750 ETH. They took my 750 ETH offer. I was like debating between one guy and another. And this guy clearly wasn't qualified to run an NFT project. He was like running an NFT marketplace, but not a super successful one. And so I ended up winning the bid and the rest is history.
1: I want to go back to that. In your mind, this thing was worth 10 million. They had obviously sold the thing. So they brought in money. They had the royalties back then. So they were kicking off some level of revenue. How much of that was tangible cash flow, and did you keep any of that, or did you start with zero? And how much of that was your vision of brand and value, the intangibles of what that could have been worth?
2: When you look at like the marketing dollars, the New York Times article, and the print with like the CNBC and the familiarity, and you like piece up all of those intangibles, then you look at revenue, which in like six months they had netted like seven million bucks, and then you start looking at Board Apes' four and a half billion dollar raise. You start understanding that cryptos vary about first longevity and history. This being the NFT project that was a lot of people's first NFT project, really one of the first mainstream pushes of NFTs. If you believe in NFTs, Pudgy Penguins and all of the ingredients to be like a, a la board ape in that same category, same time frame, same timeline. And honestly, it was way more battle-tested that holder community is so wouldn't say they're better or anything. They're just more battle-tested. They've been through every crazy FUD cycle. Ape is feeling its first real FUD cycle right now with obviously the dip in price and things. Take all of those intangibles and it's like, dude, if you believe in NFTs and you believe in PFPs, this thing's worth at least 10 million bucks. I actually told the team, I was like, the moment we bought this thing, it was worth 10 times what we bought it for, in my opinion. I firmly believe that. Thankfully, Venture has since supported that thesis higher than obviously 25. But we're definitely in line in that thought. It just had all of those intangibles. And I knew that if it had somebody with a vision that was leading the charge and doing something differently, that it ultimately was going to succeed. And I was actually really just frustrated at the entire space. Even today, Eric, if I had $50 million, just letting you know, if this company had $50 million, it would be a clinic unlike anything you've ever seen. I daydream about the moment that I have 10. So now that I have 10, things are definitely amping up a little bit, but... We bought the business with no money in the bank. So we bootstrapped. We bought it for two and a half, started with zero. We all worked for free for nine months. This group is like a group that is thankfully very well off. So they found success, but talent like that doesn't work for free. Thankfully, they saw the vision and they had means to pay their bills and some of them are pretty much set for life. That doesn't neither here nor there. These guys were still pretty much work for free. I mean, I get paid 80 grand a year. I'm probably the cheapest paid CEO in a top 20 NFT project. That I can probably guarantee you. But we bootstrap this thing with freaking nothing. When you look at what some of these other projects have, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? You are completely paying yourself an exorbitant amount. There's no other way. Because My frustration really with coming into this was also to prove a point. Everyone was claiming they were a brand. That was the keyword. That was the sell. That was the hot topic that made them tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And yet none of them actually were doing anything that any traditional brand would be doing. So they really were just schmoozing the Web3 audience with this hopium of the potential of the IP or the potential of the brand or the potential of a movie series or a physical product line. But they all completely fucking just took the money and pretty much ran. And they still show up every day. But you know, really what they're showing up for is just that monthly salary. And not because they're in the business of winning or trying to innovate or push things forward. They're really in the business of just paying for bigger homes and better vacations on a yearly basis. And so... That was a core frustration to me, and I wanted to come in and prove a point, and I think we have proven that point. I think we've shown the entire NFT space that you don't really need shit to make that shit done.
1: That should be in your new pin tweet. I want to go back to understand your background because I couldn't agree more. We have a mutual friend who had echoed this early on. I come from finance. He comes from brand marketing, and I was looking at the prices and the trading. He was like, these things calling themselves brands are all garbage. Like, this is all worthless. Luca is the only one that's impressing me. I'm curious your background, your team's background. You've shared publicly you didn't grow up with much, but before NFTs, before crypto, what are those skill sets? Your career? How did you get to this point to be with a group of people ready to spend two and a half million dollars on an NFT project?
2: Yeah, so I'm an elite marketer. That's my superpower. I just understand consumer behavior, and I understand how to get attention. So, like, that's really what I'm good at. What I think very few people can do. The team is very much a consumer product team, and there's people I've been working with for many, many years. I refer to Peter and I as our dynamic duo. I'm marketing. He's creative. They work in tandem. Good marketing means nothing without good creative. Good creative means nothing without good marketing. Lorenzo, complete tech wizard, Wharton Blockchain Accelerator winner, four-time national robotics champion, GigaBrain CTO. And now he's also our president because he just understands finances and managing people way better than I do. So I'm just definitely overarching vision. Jennifer, we definitely don't make it without Jennifer as our chief legal officer. Actually, the only person I didn't know before Pudgy, we actually brought her in. But she's an IP lawyer of 25 years, Silicon Valley lawyer, IP Silicon Valley, exactly what the heck we're doing. Complete superstar and just puts the company above all else. Then you have people like Vedant. I teed them up in a consulting business that I was just doing on the side for fun about a year prior. We got Nick, got Kevin, got people like that. Just people I've been working with for many, many years and people that I know I've succeeded with. Now, as we scale the team, it's, I'm not going to lie to you, but it's been a little bit tough because all the people that were like low-hanging fruit and next steps, we've taken all in. So now we're like going outside of our network. So it has been a little bit strange because we've made it this far, really going inside of our network. But just consumer product guys and gals that we've all seen tremendous success before. Two nine figure a year businesses that I've been a part of very meaningful way, whether it's on the cap table as a founder or as huge investor and C level role for this. And so we have a playbook that we kind of follow that makes these things succeed and permeate and transcend. It's kind of our superpower. And so we're kind of just leveraging that playbook, leveraging technology and pieces we never had before. Peter and I have never had a Lorenzo before who can actually like build the craziest technology. I've been dying to have somebody like this in my life for a long time. So we're really catching a groove and we all love each other. I consider these guys my best friends. Totally don't recommend getting in business with your friends. But these are people that we kind of did business first and then became best friends. So it's a little different of a relationship. And I respect them. I enjoy working with them. They're pillars. I could not do anything of what these guys do. Peter runs the creative department completely autonomous, fucking monster, runs a team of 10. Don't need to do anything. I just sit back and enjoy the content. Lorenzo, these guys are giga brains. I don't know what's going on over there, but today I found out that I thought we have a chip in this product that I thought was a soul-bound chip. Look what I found out today. Basically, when you scan this chip, it shows up in your wallet as like a token. And if I were to sell this to somebody else, to yourself, and you were to scan the chip, it would take the token out of that person's wallet and put it into your wallet. I'm like, oh, dude, I thought this thing was a soul bound the whole time. Apparently, when you scan the chip, that triggers a call from somebody else's wallet into yours. Fucking weird. I don't know how they're doing it. But that's just like an example of I'm the CEO of this company. This is my favorite product. And these guys built an obvious functionality to a product that I didn't know was as cool as that. Like, how badass is that? So the ultimate authentication layer, complete innovation, that's the type of team you want. You don't want guys to come to you, running. You want self-starters. You want self-doers. You want self-innovators on your team. You don't want all the ideas to come from the top down and then have people execute and ask for permission to do things. Just do it. That's really our culture. Just come here, innovate, make products that are fucking cooler than everybody else's products and eventually we will win. It's kind of our motto. And so, so far that's been kind of true. Hopefully I hope the space matures more and starts valuing execution deliverables over speculation. That's a tall ass to ask, but I think over time it will show that what we're doing is the right way and we're on the right path and trajectory.
1: Yeah, this is completely outside my world. just fascinated by it. You call yourself elite level marketer before any of this exposure for me, I wouldn't have known the difference between comms, marketing, creative, like I know any of this stuff. So I'm a complete outsider. When it comes to like an elite level marketing, did you grow these skills by staring at people and you know what hits? Does that make you a tastemaker? Or do you know who the tastemakers are and what the market needs? Like, how do you get the skills to call yourself an elite level marketer?
2: I think a lot of it comes from growing up. I think a lot of trial and tribulation. I think my superpower is understanding people and perspective because I grew up in so many different environments and so many great and fucked up situations. So I think that diversity gives me an understanding of depth in different personalities and different target markets. So that's maybe a core advantage. And let's say I've been doing this for seven years. pretty crazy to think about seven years. I mean, I've lost over $10 million building these businesses and failing. I talk about my wins. We don't talk about my fails. I had plenty of failures. And even on the wins, testing how to make those win at least $10 million, figuring it out. And the thing that I enjoyed was making the money. My whole come up was through Shopify and Shopify's, again, very interesting platform. Every time you make a sale on Shopify, it goes to Ching. I got like obsessed with this cha-ching. And again, me being so broke growing up, coming from nothing, second, I was making money. I just got really obsessed early on with my career with getting more cha-chings. It was like crap. If my perspective, hustle, and then you got this dopamine of a killer and this cha-ching, shop by cha-ching, I spent the first three years of my career only thinking about how do I get more cha-chings? how do I get more eyeballs and how do I get more eyeballs, I think is all about what marketing is about.
1: You came from nothing and then clearly you had a lot of money, millions of dollars to now kind of do whatever you want. There's kind of two personality types of this that I've been intrigued by. One is you have this huge chip on your shoulder, this hustle, this desire to change your situation and and the cha-ching is the thing that gets you there. Some people, they get to that point now they're afraid of ever going back. Other people have this death-defying you could take all of it away from me today. I know I would start at the bottom and get back up. As you started to grow that wealth, what did that do to your risk immersion?
2: Yeah, this is an interesting one. When I first got it, I was very scared of going back. I still probably have nightmares about going back. There's really levels of this shit. And to really be free, which I think money is sole purpose is to give people freedom. If you look at money in any other way, then you don't understand money, in my opinion. But if money is freedom... A million dollars is in freedom. And I know what the number is. The number is not a million. It's not 10 million. It's a number more than that. At least for me personally, my number is a certain number to achieve real freedom. And so you're not going to get there without taking real risks and potentially laying it all on the line and losing it all. When I became a millionaire, I actually almost did lose it all in a business that I started with Peter to kind of take the existing business to the next level. And I took huge risks... I actually went from like having three, four million dollars in my name to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I had bought a house. I was 19 and I had just bought a house for like a million and a half. So it wasn't a complete retraction, but I had lost like two million bucks, which I didn't think was possible in like 12 months. I that I was like immune to that. So you definitely have to take risks. That's why we bought Pudgy Penguins. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in an emerging market that I believe in. And so this was very much one of those risks. My network and what I know, I think, is fine. It, most important word in that phrase is my network. I even have like a setup where I've made so many good investments and so many good relationships that I probably make a million dollars a year right now, not doing anything. So that's why I can go pay myself eighty years in pudgies because I get dividends from about three or four different companies or payouts or however they do it. So I'm a firm believer in having like that plan F backup plan to say that there isn't a safe somewhere with a couple hundred grand in cash and some bitcoins and that like would be lying like there definitely has to be plan s actually if i had zero nothing like i would be fucking petrified but i've hedged my bets so many different ways i'm so diverse in my portfolio and my product offerings from like art to watches to bitcoins and cash and real estate if my bank account actually got tapped I couldn't make one bad business decision or five bad business decisions and blow the whole thing up. I'm too diverse in that respect.
1: Let's move to the brand side of it because you did this great series called Building in Public, which I recommend. It clearly shows how good you guys are at content creation, storytelling, plus actually getting your story across. I think it's fantastic. I wanted to start with the brands of like talk about Pudgy Penguins and you and this whole space. And I don't know if this is the right starting place, but the gods and Frank and you seem to have this really nice on-screen dynamic with each other. And the thing I find interesting is that Frank, and it's not to bring up their brand or to focus on them, but he's kind of like this rock star like Gordon goner was. It's both the brand and this person. You have this rock star status, When people talk to me about you, they talk about your execution, and then they talk about the brand. So with these NFT projects, sometimes you have these founders as being part of it. How do you think about, just as a starting point, the brand separation between the founder being such a big part of that cult and the brand itself?
2: One piece of research I did, I made a tweet about it a couple of years ago, but there's a direct correlation with the most successful stocks in certain industries and the followers of the CEO. Tesla and Elon Musk is a perfect testament to that. Does Tesla reach trillion dollar market cap in that run without Elon being Elon? I 100% believe no. Elon has created this godlike, super genius savant that just makes you justify these monster valuations because if you can execute on it, which you did with Tesla, then you can support the fucking genius thesis and the genius thesis is worth tens of trillions of dollars. I'm very much heads down, less talking about it, more executing on it. Frank made me realize that I have to be just as much talking about it as I have to do executing on it. Just me personally speaking to you open honestly. I genuinely think outside of Yuga, nobody's executing the way that we're executing right now. But I don't have the highest floor price. I don't have the most volume. So it's clearly something fundamentally wrong. And I can't just complain and be like, the space doesn't value execution and fucking cry about it. I do think, though, when it's all said and done, when you look at the space 10 years from now, they're going to look at me and Frank as like huge, huge pillars of this. I truly believe where we come from, our thoughts, our age, like we're like perfectly positioned to shape this space. I think the space is going to be shaped by 20 year olds who are 20 year olds today. And that's not to be biased to anybody older, just respectfully, maybe between you and I, Eric is I grew up on Instagram since I was in elementary school. I am so much more native to this new world than you are. And at no fault to you, just because my sponge, when my brain was expanding, I was expanding on this. I can just move on it so much faster. And the same with the people who are going to be 15 years old right now, who will be 20 in five years. They're going to have an advantage over me and Frank. You're just more adapt and more programmable when you kind of grow up around these certain technologies. And I think Web3 is a new iteration of the internet. I think that's going to be shaped by people who have been native to the internet since day one. I don't remember a world without the internet. So the kids coming after me are going to be even crazier. Actually, one of the best people in this company, in the Pudgy Penguin Company, is a 19-year-old. Our secret weapon, just so you know, is a 19-year-old. I would literally put a million dollars against him, against anybody in Web3 strategy person, I promise. He just gets it. Obviously, there's deficiencies with age. I'm not saying that we're just perfect. But I think there's certain core advantages that I think we have because of our age and will shape. And, and he's been a huge inspiration and help for me, Frank. I think Frank will be the first to go number one. If anyone's going to flip apes, I'm a firm believer it's me and Frank. And I think Frank will be the first to do it. And then I'm going to flip Frank.
1: Yeah, I think on the point of the age thing, I totally agree. I think as someone who considers themselves more of an investor, I wouldn't have a biotech startup ran by an English major. There's certain things where certain industries, and when you're talking about culture and brand and being on the moment, I definitely think that you're spot on there. Going down that path, we talk about execution. It does feel like a lot of the brands have made mistakes or missteps. So I'm curious, although you're humble, you also believe that you're going to someday be number one in it. And so I believe you have the confidence based on your experience to deliver that. But it is hard for me to think of a Pudgy Penguins misstep from a brand standpoint well, it does feel like there's this immense pressure to build in public. And you've talked about it before that you love that pressure. I'm curious, what do you attribute others mistakes to or the building in public? How has it elevated your game from other stuff you've done in the past? I'm a competitor. I'm
2: going for the fucking ring. I'm here to compete. I'm here to win. And I'm here to be the best. And you'd be surprised I go out and extend my hand because like, People going from 30th floor to fucking one eighth floor is not serving us well. It's only hurting this. So, like, I'm trying to do my best to fucking plunge protect where I can and give advice and extend my hand where I can. But I want to be the best. I want my holders to be the best. I want this to be the best bet that you could have made in Web3. And I think what comes with that, I think you see all the reasons why we do certain things. Okay, Web3 wants transparency. Everyone wants transparency. Great. So, I'm going to put a fucking camera in my face and I'm going to give you transparency. I'm going to give you the good, bad, and the ugly. Then you can't say that anyone's more transparent than me. I'm going to show up twice a week. I'm going to give you guys product updates every couple of days. And that's it. Who's going to beat me in transparency? If that's what Web3 wants, I'm going to give it to you. Web3 wants execution. They want, don't want speculation. They don't want rug pulls and pump and dumps. Okay, I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you real business. I just listen to what Web3 wants and I try to give it to them. Now... I really think we've been delivering these last couple of months, especially, and I'm like pretty rubbing my head around why certain projects, their floor is indicative of a higher floor than us, though that isn't the only indicator, it's an important indicator. And so there's like one final piece in whale management that we don't do. I think the only justification why somebody has a higher floor price than us right now is either one Ponzionomics or better whale management. And you'd be surprised, but a lot of this game is whale management. If you look at some of the top projects and you kind of like think, why are they still surviving or why are they still around? Whale management's an interesting one. And then Ponziomics, obviously, nature of crypto.
1: It feels like that's that matter of time before that unwinds and the value moves. Talk to me about whale management. What does that mean?
2: So my whole thesis for a very long time, and it's still my thesis, I am optimizing for the individual. I am optimizing for the mass. I think there's a very lame thing going around in NFTs right now amongst the top NFTs, which is like catering to the ten whales in your group over the other five thousand holders. Now, there's a balance, and that's where I misgaged. is I was like, dude, I'm gonna not gonna do this selectism shit, but in reality, People are thinking that Project X, Y, and Z are doing a better job than me because their floor price is higher. And the only reason why their floor price is higher is because they've got 10 giga whales that are just holding that thing. Okay, well, I'm kind of doing my community a disservice by not optimizing for the people with size that putting their money where their mouth is in a meaningful way to collect our collectibles. So right now we're kicking up the whale management side where it's like, okay, we got to play a little bit of the game and I get it. And to say that that is unreasonable, it's not. I have a platinum Amex. At the end of the day, a black card gets instant calls. You get instant fucking service because you spend a quarter million dollars a month versus, you know, my platinum, which is still great service. It's a great experience, but I might have to wait here and there on a call in a line a little bit. That was kind of an eye opener perspective for me over the last month was like, okay, I need to neglect the black card owners. And to say that, you just get the same as the green and the gold and the platinum is actually not how the world works. And I think our holders will understand that as they start to see maybe a little bit of a couple free exclusive merch pieces to the whales, like things like that, that we're going to kind of kick in. And granted, Yuga might not need to do that, but you guys, lightning in a bottle, like huge monster run. They're the only project that doesn't need to do any of the shit that I'm talking about. They're in a whole different playing field because of, how high and how much value they gave to holders during that epic run but everybody else this is the game that we're playing we're playing we're in a whole different pond we have to fight for ours
1: i like the fact that you're admitting you didn't do this before so clearly you did not think this was the appropriate strategy and you have to balance this looking at the floor price for years talking to public ceos and everyone's saying i don't look at the share price but you know damn well everyone looks at the share price and trying not to be impacted by it in the short run and think for the long run Is it your belief that this whale management is a temporary thing and your experience with brands and marketing that over the long term, eventually, look, you only own one of these things, you're not dealing with this? Or is this a forever thing that will happen because these are collectibles and there's money and there'll be whales?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because it's like, does Pokemon do this with their first edition collectors? Probably not. Ferrari does it Does a Shopify answer to Vanguard if Vanguard wants something, you know what I mean? Like, is there a game that's played there? Totally, there must be. There's this variation, and then you have like high luxury goods like Louis Vuitton, Ferrari, like there's complete selectism, but dude, that's what keeps the business going. So I think there's a balance. We kind of started off with like complete neglect. I take a lot of people out to dinners. You'd be surprised how many holders that are not even Pudgy Penguin holders that I've taken out to dinners just because I knew they were monster Zuki holders or monster board ape holders, fucking like $2,000 fucking omakase. So that's just like a part of the game and the strategy. It's a relationships business. This is very much a relationships business. Obviously, I'll do things like that. But there's a little department that I'm standing up of like one or two people where it's like sole job is to do that. Do that. Be the concierge. Like, is there an AI thing? It's going to take three months to be fully fleshed and going. I wanted to be as fair as possible, but people actually don't care about fair. They care about their bags. So this whole like... Altruistic point of view of just like one for all, you, the little guy is just as great as the big guy. I actually thought about it, and I talked to some little guys, and they're like, "Dude, fuck us, go take care of the big guy because the big guy's going to take care of us." Everyone understands the game that we're in because that game is not just a game that's subject to NFTs and Web three. It's a game that's subject to Louis Vuitton, a game that's subject to Ferrari, a subject to even the biggest stock companies, to the LPs and the VCs. It's the game of life.
1: No matter what system you make, someone's always gonna bitch about it and say it's unfair. I think that the majority of people, what they wanna know is, it's not Luca randomly picking people, Luca strategically spending his time, which makes the most sense for the brand. And as long as you're leading the brand the way you are, I think people will support you. It's the minute there's a misstep that's completely unrelated, that all of a sudden the knives come out and say, why are you spending these fancy times with these really rich holders and not worried about the brand? That's when it goes sideways. Totally agree. That's kind of like the investor management. Now on the brand management, you start off about this, talk about being the brand for everyone. You're at a table with all the founders of the top 10 brands and saying, who is going to be the brand for everybody? And I'm curious about marketing for niches versus the challenge of saying that. When some of these brands came out, I said, this is degeneracy. These are young, the boardy persona was this pothead smoking male and... It was a very specific thing. And then they're coming out with like cartoon characters. I'm like, my kids are not going to see the NFT world. And with Pudgies, you're going for traders to children, to moms, to wives. You're trying to be for everyone. And I'm curious, that's audacious. It doesn't surprise me having spoken to you a couple of times now. But how do you think about balancing the different communities?
2: It's interesting because ultimately what I want to accomplish is be the face of NFTs. And so... When you look at Board Ape, I'm a huge Board Ape Maxi, by the way. So, like, sometimes I'll poke holes in the Board Ape system, but it's not to poke holes to try to put them down and to put me up. It's just our core differentiator. And I think they're fucking phenomenal. But why I think we can be something different that I think ultimately is better for the space is because the face of NFTs can't be mutant farts and getting high in the fucking sewer. Like, it just can't. Like, if you really want to push boundaries and like really get people involved, the East does not fuck with that. You get caught with a joint in Singapore that you might be in jail for life. So there's like a balance here. And I think for us, we're also very traditionally aligned, which I think is important. Again, the space, I think, is very contrarian and different. There's a lot of artistic pieces and artistic PFPs and PFPs that may be universal. Can the face of NFTs really be something that's super abstract or pixelated? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. When you see a pudgy penguin, I think we can all agree, the penguin is very easily digestible. You take a penguin to Tennessee, they get it. Go to an elementary school, they get it. You take it to a mom, she gets it. You take it to you know a person in the hood, they get it. You take it to Europe and Paris and London, they get it. You take it to somewhere in the middle of Asia and some Eastern country town, they get it. Everyone gets the pudgy penguin. It's very easily digestible. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing abstract. There's nothing pixelated. It's not preference to a certain art style. It's a pudgy penguin and arguably one of the best, the best drawn penguin or penguin IP ever made because they've always made penguins ugly. So if you look at that and you like really digest the layers, it's like, yeah, These guys who are embodying a positive message, one that's like uplifting, funny, and relatable, clearly making products that people love, bringing blockchain to the masses, clearly has this IP that's completely digestible nothing abstract or weird or different, very in line with a lot of traditional people's thoughts. Can you say the same about everything else? I don't think you can, just my perspective. You can plop this thing in the middle of anywhere and I think they understand it and they can resonate with it and identify with it. And ultimately... That's something that I think is needed to get tens of millions of users using this technology and participating in digitally collecting. I just think it's necessary. I think somebody has to do it. You need the world of Warcraft and the other side. You need the Soho house and the D gods. You need the anime and the Azuki. But when you think about our piece of the pie, I think our piece of the pie is actually the biggest, the most addressable, in my opinion. And I think it's honestly the most necessary. Our thesis is about transcending outside of the eco-chamber, outside of the funnel. It is so much looking outwards and not inwards, and some of the others fill the same void, but there's no bigger addressable market cap around IP than cute IP. It's cute IP is 80% of the pie, and then everything else. Maybe anime might be like 20% of the pie, then the other 10% is something else. But even anime has no shot Against competing against cute IP and how much cute IP is consumed more than the rest. Let me give you a bullish sentence that I think will interest you. Pudgy Penguins is the number one cute IP on the blockchain. Number one. Number one by PFP, by recognition, by status, by volume traded. You could say Axie Infinity, but I think Axie Infinity got volume traded for different reasons, not for the reasons of it being a cute picture a cute character. It got volume traded because of the coin and the chance of passive income and money. But outside of Axie Infinity, we're number one. If you believe in IP and you believe in blockchain IP, there's really only one bet to make. Or you can make a bunch of other bets, but you can't make any of those other bets without making the first bet, which is the Pudgy penguin bet, because that's the most fiscally responsible bet if you just took what I said and believe it, which I think would be really hard to argue otherwise.
1: I will not argue with it. I guess if the penguin thing is interesting, that it is recognizable. I think when people looked at it, when they were all for, just an animal every week. And I'm sure that there are lots of cute animals that Luca and his team could have gone after. Give me some of the early things that you did that really set this off. Could have been koalas. It could have been chipmunks. I know penguins are great, but obviously you guys did a lot of steps. Looking back on it from when you took over with zero in the bank, what are the things that you're most proud of that set it on the course to be this number one cutest traded IP?
2: We just gave and never took, just constant giving. I came in there the first week and instead of saying, here's my plan, I said, hey, let's formulate the plan together. And we did. Our first month and taking this over, we had no money. What did I do? I threw a hundred grand party in Miami that I could not afford. Tory Lanez performed. It was a yacht the size of the fucking Eiffel Tower. Biggest yacht you can rent in Miami, like 500 feet. It's fucking insane. $12,000 an hour. Complete full service food. Didn't have to pay a penny. Got our whole team, put them in Airbnbs. That's like just the first month, went on that first sprint at that party. Then we just started providing value, started showing up and communicating, not deterring. We put two and a half million dollars here. Like how are you going to bet against us? Step after step after step, I say, I'm going to do something. I do it. Hey, instead of just extracting, we let you participate. We're going to make this toy line. Hey, you bring your NFTs. We'll make the toy line together. Boom, participation. And then I think like a lot of people will copy what we're doing. So like a lot of people are doing our Instagram content and our gifts and our toys, but it's like. You guys don't understand it. We're not doing well because we just made a toy line. It's just so freaking cohesive in the vision. Everybody gets our vision because they get our character and they see that vision within that character. You can't have little dragon characters and think you're going to go and do the same thing and launch some plushies and think you're going to have the same success. A lot of these people are in for a rude awakening. Oh, you have an NFT IP, so you can just go do relatable content like we're doing. It's not even your brand. But if you look at everything that we're doing, it's not one individual piece that we're doing that's impressive. It's how cohesive the entire brand is that's impressive. Is that anybody with eyeballs, any finger on the pulse, can see what we're doing and be like, fuck, that's really well done. I think D-God does it well. I think Azuki does it well. I actually think board apes don't do this very well. Being a board ape maxi, I think this is like, they could be stronger here. One of the reasons why I think they picked up 10KTF because I think they were really good at this stuff. I feel like they just started translating their brand message more recently better. Still a lot of moving parts there. I think when you're talking brand, it's us, Azuki, gods, who have really have a cohesive brand.
1: To me, I find the place a fascinating case that there's definitely things you can see where, yes, I'd love to see what would happen if Luca had $50 million. But before I'd ever heard of you, I would never give you $50 million. Now that I've seen you as much as people think that's a good thing, that's a huge burden to just be dumped in that and have unlimited resources. There's definitely something where the best things come from scarcity. And along those lines, for your brand, and I do, give me the brand marketing class or the master classes. are you thinking that far in advance? When you first got it, no plan, let's just all jam together and figure out what we want. When you look out in the future, are you saying, now I have my one, three and five year. Or are you just so reactive to the pulse of what's going on that the minute you hear something like this week's plan is three weeks ahead and then four weeks from now, I'll decide where I'm going.
2: So I know my North Star for 10 years from now, like the ultimate of everything goes right. I think that's really important. For the longest, we were not three months ahead. Part of this space is you have to be on your toes. I found about ordinals really quick. I saw Frank do ordinals and I said, I'm not going to touch that because I thought he did it the best. But I actually saw it before he launched it and discussed it internally before he launched it. Could have been a great way to be non-diluted to our ecosystem, raise it a little bit of, and also providing something that's really cool and being on the forward facing. Before Yuga or Frank did that shit, I was totally there, but I didn't want to be too fluid in my pivots. So I didn't do that. You could argue both sides that that was a good decision or that was a bad decision. Only time will tell. So you have to be somewhat fluid. One of the things that Frank does well, some people think it's a huge deterrent. Some people think it's a huge blessing. I would probably say I appreciate it and I personally respect it is he pivots on a fucking dime. His vision three months ago is probably not his vision today. His vision six months ago. Some people don't like that because they don't know what they're buying into. But that's what also keeps him really exciting and keeps the hype. It's like you almost don't know what you're going to get. So, it's really a catch 22. I know some guys with serious size who do not rock with that. I know some other guys with serious size that are like, dude, this is the only thing I need to be buying into because fuck anything else. I'm trying to find a balance in between that. Me personally, I see actually both arguments. For a long time, I was only three months ahead. Now we're about six months ahead. We know what's going to happen six months from now, which is good. I'm trying to get 12 months ahead with little pockets that I can fill in the gaps. I don't think you can get more than 12 months ahead. I think if you try to plan more than 12 months ahead, you'd be doing yourself a disservice. Obviously, there's a couple products that do require like a 24-month roadmap that like you stay concrete and stick to. If I can get 12 months ahead, that'd make me feel really good on our product line, on our launches, like on our web three activations and tooling and things that we're making. I think 12 months ahead is a fair equilibrium with, again, some pockets, the ability to be like, hey, if something really sexy comes around, we got to stop what we're doing and fucking pounce on that opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think that was kind of the earlier question I asked where it's nothing against it, but I feel like if you're buying to God's you're buying Frank versus when you're buying Pudgies, I can see a brand, which gives, for someone like me, who might be playing on longer terms or buying or something or holding, that's going to be a personality thing. I totally get it that different people are going to want different things. But obviously, that also clearly leads to different brands. You talked about the industry, both from a competitive standpoint, out of respect, that you want to be number one and be people. You're not putting people down to put yourself up, which I like. But what does the industry need? If you could stab your, we would just accelerate through. To me, there's obviously the down market hopefully will purge some of the nonsense out. But what would help move it forward to bring whatever the 10-year vision is faster?
2: Garga will tell you infrastructure. The infrastructure is not there yet. I haven't had big enough moments to tell you that the infrastructure is not there yet, other than pudgy world, which I'm now feeling the pains of. We launched something that was working perfectly and then fucking because the infrastructure is not there, things are starting to break. So Obviously, the scamming and the stealing has got to be some sort of like fucking safety mechanism there that always sucks. There's been times I remember that we'll have like a pretty bad dump on our digital collectibles because somebody got hacked. We'll cascade fear. Some dude got hacked a couple months ago for 20. That took us from four and a half ETH to three and a half ETH. The community's not stoked when that happens. And then I think ultimately execution. This is my biggest frustration. I don't know how to fix it. All I can do is just say it so the space can get educated on it. The space does not fucking reward execution, dude the space almost rewards the speculation and the rugs and the extraction of value. And everyone will tweet, oh, this is sucks, this is sucks. And they will like two days later go buy it because it's pumping and they just will go buy it. And it's like, oh, but you just tweeted how much it sucked, how bad this was for the space, how much of a rug and a needle move and how we cannot support lack of execution and things like that. And then just because it pumped 0.2 ETH, you're now buying it. And supporting it it might sound like complaining so i just want to stop there because i don't mean it to be i am frustrated by it i think the space will mature and i think there will be a new meta where people are going to look to like what we're doing and be like dude that's the only bet worth making so hopefully my time will come sometimes it can get a little discouraging when it's like dude i'm really pushing the fucking boundary what are you doing buying something else because the consumer right now that has liquidity is very much a degen And it's very much a short-term profit maxi. And then I also think our picture is interesting. There's a new era of looking at these things. And I think people don't look at them as tokens. They look at them as pictures. And I really encourage people to start looking at these like tokens from an investment thesis. Because sometimes people let the picture cloud their judgment. Oh my God, it's such a pretty picture. The art is so good, but the team behind the art sucks. They've shown you time and time again. So why are you buying it? Because of the art that's so stupid. Oh, well, Pudgy Penguin isn't really for me. It's cute. And I'm a man. Look at the fundamentals of the token, though. Remove the picture. If the picture is not for you, great. The picture is there to fool you, truthfully. If they looked at NFTs like tokens, we'd fix a lot of problems, I promise. But even the tokens, they still do that. Why does Solana have a bigger market cap than Polygon when Polygon makes real money and Solana doesn't? It's just the nature of the space. It's like a broader frustration. But I do think with the NFT space, it is very lopsided. The picture is so confusing to people.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that this comes up with is where does the value accrue? So I would buy equity in pudgy penguins, invest in the company. And there's this whole question of like, does owning that token, that picture, what am I owning? This is like the biggest thing in crypto where securities and tokens begin and end. And so I think for people, it almost becomes easier to become this massive speculative class because... They don't know what they get. There's a gray area. And what they end up doing is just definitely by the crowd, just flipping to the next project that they think is going to pump their bags. This one frustrates me because it's one I hear
2: tons like, dude, I want equity. I don't want the NFT. And I'm like, thinking to myself, I'm like, well, what other NFTs do you own? Because in reality, from my perspective, I know exactly how to accrue value to holders. I've studied the board eight playbook. I could tell you the back of my hand how to do the board eight playbook. And I'm going to do the board eight playbook to the best of my ability The thing is, is I can't do the Board 8 playbook at 4 ETH with 3 other existing collections. I can only start kicking in the Board 8 playbook once I start hitting 20, 25, 30 ETH. I know exactly when to pull the levers. Clearly doing everything it is to build a brand. I'm licensing the IP for all of the NFTs for the products that I'm making. So if you believe that I'm a billion-dollar brand one day, then the chances of your IP being licensed and you getting some sort of royalty is fairly high if I can achieve that. Especially if you participate and you're here and you're owning multiple Penguins, your odds increase significantly. Because realistically, you know, for licensing deals, only only 1,000 or 2,000 people participating. You build a product line big enough, how many products does Funko have? Like 10,000 different SKUs? It's very achievable, actually, when you think about it. So I get that argument, but I actually like kind of don't. One is executing. One is pushing the space forward. One has a real path on how to accrue value to holders. One, based off of the knowledge and the understanding of the space that the founder and the team has, clearly. One, based off of understanding supply and demand mechanics and all of the things it takes to appreciate a physical and digital item. You see this in our physical releases. You see this in how we're treating our digital ecosystem. So it's like, yeah, but like you saying that you must own no other NFTs because if you put this next to, again, with the exception of I think only a couple, an Azuki, a Bored Ape, a D God. If you own anything else, I don't know, man. I get preference, I get taste, and I get all of these things. But like at some point, if we want the space to be legitimized, the NFT collector today has to start rewarding positive behaviors like Pudgy Penguins. I ask all the people, why don't you own a Pudgy Penguin? I know the answers and I know the problems that currently exist. And that's why I'm fixing them. One of them being the whale management thing. One of them, hey, we're a kid's brand. And I'm like, okay, I could get that. These are really becoming a huge focus for us because this is not a kid's toy. I'm hearing people on their reservations and I'm fixing for it. So we'll see in six months from now when I fix for all of these reservations what people's excuses are.
1: Yeah, the space that you're in right now, execution isn't rewarded. The next 10, 20% move gets rewarded because you're leading towards still the same group of people. I think there's one of two things that's going to happen. The collector base will change over time and they will reward them, or really smart people like you will move on to something else. Those are the two paths I see. You can create a lot of value in a lot of ways, Luca. I'll tell you my personal bias, because I don't own one, but I have always wanted one, and I think this whole process will probably make me go buy some. Personally, not my advice. I remember when it first came out, there was crypto traders that hated NFTs. They were OG. They thought the whole NFT thing was stupid and a whole new group of people showed up and they were just nothing but negative. And then they bought the Pudgy Penguins and they were kind of the first people. It always left a bad taste in my mouth. And then I had friends from Wall Street buy them. The New York Times hit. I met Kevin Roos for lunch after the article at randomly at an event. And so I was like, how the hell is this brand getting all this attention? Now, two 18 and 19 year olds did an amazing job bootstrapping the brand. And it was just this negative taste. I had enough, it, had it was all pre-Luca everyone's like, talk to Luca, see Luca. Then you start looking at it and it's just most people aren't poking their heads up because it's not the interesting thing to do. But my belief is over the long term, either the people executing get rewarded or those people leave and the whole thing fades away. There is not a third path for me. I could agree with that. Probably a great place to end, Luca. This has been a lot of fun. We ended with the same question and I'm excited to ask you because you are executing like this. What are you most excited to build over the next six months and over the next six years?
2: Within the next six months, we have... I think one of the most important and impactful announcements to ever reach Web3 that will happen for the year's end. We also release, I think, a product that solves one of Web3's biggest problems, which is licensing at scale and and Project Overpass. And so I'm happy to make that tool for the Pudgy Penguin community and ultimately give that to the space to enjoy and to digest. And then six years from now, I want to be the world's greatest IP brand. I want people to know and think of Pudgy Penguins the same way they know Hello Kitty or Pokemon, or any of these amazing IPs and characters. And I want to be doing shows and TV. And I want product lines to get even deeper and more extensive or more collaborations. And ultimately, I want to have a game a la similar to a Roblox or something like that. And so again, six years from now is quite a long time. So we'll see, but that's kind of our thoughts.
1: Thanks, Luke. You never know as an investor who to bet on. There's some people I would not bet against. I put you on that list. So thanks for doing this today. This has been fun. Thanks, dude. I appreciate you.
0: To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot